learning about the secret of contentment. As you turn there, uh, it is a 4th of July weekend, and I just want to acknowledge uh, the blessing that we have to live in a country like the United States of America. It is a blessing, and uh, amen. So if you have a chance to barbecue or whatever you're going to do tomorrow, enjoy the day. Let's just remember that our country was founded on some very important principles. And yes, it was founded by flawed men uh, and women, but at the same time, they had a a real sense of the divine. In fact, uh, most of the signers were committed believers, and the ones that weren't still believed in God and had a faith. And they founded the country on biblical principles. And uh, we are the inheritors of that. We fought a revolutionary war. Our country fought a civil war. I think we lost uh, 600,000 Americans in the civil war alone. Christians were largely responsible for the abolition of slavery and the things that were wrong in the country. And still we have our issues and we have our problems but we fought a couple of world wars and so forth. Much blood was shed to secure what you enjoy right now. And I pray that we don't lose it. I pray that we don't forget our history and walk away from the God who I believe has blessed this nation. So uh, tomorrow is a special holiday, and I would encourage you to do a couple things. One, keep praying for the country. Pray for our leaders. Uh, pray that we return to the Lord And remember that it always starts with God's people. Every revival has been a return of God's people to the preaching of God's word and to the living of God's word. So let's pray for that. And and let's pray that the Lord would work in our hearts as well and that we'd have grateful hearts for all that we've been blessed with as we enjoy the life that God has given to us. Today's text is the secret of contentment. We're moving verse by verse through Philippians. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to stand with us. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us via live stream. We love you, and uh, this is the Word of the Lord, Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Father, thank you for your living word. This is such a wonderful section. I believe a revolutionary section for many of us to see what you have for us today and to put it into practice We have a promise of the peace of God in verse 7 and the God of peace being with us in this text. And we're grateful for that promise, Lord. And we want to learn the secret of contentment. 
And it is a secret for many in our culture and many in the church and perhaps many of us. Maybe we are a discontented people. Would you help us, Lord, to hear what the Spirit would say to your people at this very moment? Teach us contentment in Christ. Amen. You can have a seat. The secret of contentment. I was thinking of David when he wrote Psalm 23, and he said, The Lord is my shepherd. Do you remember? I shall not want. Now, when David wrote Psalm 23, he was talking about the good shepherd who takes care of the most important needs in our lives. And the most important need that we have in our lives is for him. He is the key to contentment. When the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not be in want or be in need of anything. And you say, what does that mean? Well, that means this, that all the core, most important things that you need are found in the good shepherd. And I'm talking about spiritual realities now. I'm talking about the fact that David goes on to say, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, remember? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So in the good shepherd, all of our most important needs are taken care of. And that's why David could say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. But let's face it, contentment is a quiet secret says one writer, known only to a cherished few. It seems like even though we know the principle of contentment, we have a tough time being content. We are the most blessed society that maybe has ever lived on the planet in terms of things at our fingertips. And yet we live in a very discontented age with discontentment all around us. It seems like contentment is always just a little bit away from our grasp. You ask, what's the definition of contentment? Here's uh, one if you're taking notes. It does point to happiness. Contentment does. But the root idea of the word is to have need of nothing. Need of nothing is the key word. It's not want. It's need. The story is told of a farmer who lived on the same farm his whole life. It was a good farm. But with the passing years, the farmer began to tire of it. He longed for change, for something better. Every day he found a new reason for criticizing some feature of the old place. Finally, he decided to sell and listed the farm with a real estate broker who promptly prepared a sales advertisement. As one might expect, he emphasized all the farm's advantages, ideal location, modern equipment, healthy stock, acres of fertile ground, etc., before placing the ad in the local paper, the realtor called the farmer and read the copy of the ad for his approval. When he had finished, the farmer cried out, Hold everything! I've changed my mind! I'm not going to sell! I've been looking for a place like that my whole life! <laughs> and some of us realize that the things that are all around us, including the people around us, we've perhaps taken for granted. And there's something very revolutionary in Philippians 4, 8, and 9 that hit me this week, and I believe it was, it's the Lord showing something to us, some fresh manna or insight into this text, and it is this. And I believe that this could be totally transformative for many of you, and it's this. The, the contentment being talked about is not just contentment with circumstances, where you live geographically, etc., 
It has to do with contentment with people around you. We get discontented with people and we tend to nitpick their personalities, etc. Contentment means to be satisfied with what one has or what one is, uh, wanting more or nothing else. It's a satisfaction or ease of mind. It is, contentment is really the opposite of worry and the opposite of something that I've learned about, about in the last years, something called catastrophic thinking. And I would submit to you that many of you suffer from catastrophic thinking. What is that? That in your mind, you create consistent catastrophes. That you take situations, scenarios, what ifs, people, etc., the world, all that's happening, and you create consistent catastrophes. And if you think about this, this is something that you can catch yourself doing. Uh, I was reading a book about uh, uh, some medical stuff, and I came across this concept, and this doctor was talking about people who have catastrophic thinking and the physical effects that it has on the body. And it's not hard to figure out, right? You start thinking about something, and you start creating a catastrophe in your mind that's not reality at all. But that catastrophic thinking is actually the opposite of contentment. And we're going to learn some things about what we're to focus on and how we're to live to overcome these things in our relationships and in our life. Paul opens with a fresh idea, but I believe it's linked to the previous section. And I believe this is the revolution that is partly in the text. That you cannot divorce verses 8 and 9 from a argument or disharmony happening between two women in the Philippian church, namely Euodia and Suntuke. Their situation is mentioned in verses 2 and 3. And Paul has asked his fellow comrade, a church leader in Philippi, to help these women get along. They were both warriors in the gospel. They had come alongside Paul and been very helpful in the gospel ministry in the colony or city of Philippi. But something had happened between them. If you're with us last week, I told you that I don't think it was a main doctrinal issue, else Paul would have brought it up, something that needed to be corrected theologically. It seems to be a personality conflict and a peripheral issue type of conflict. And it had become, it had gotten to the point, it had gone on long enough where it got to Paul, to his ears, enough that he would put it in the Philippian letter, which is only four chapters. And many scholars believe that Paul's been kind of hinting at this disagreement as he's talked about unity and so forth. And this is what I want you to see. I want you to see that there is a undoubted connection, though there's a new idea here, to the disagreement between the two women. I'm going to read directly from my notes so that we don't miss, any, miss anything. What is potentially revolutionary for many of us is to apply verse 8, to apply verse 8 to people, especially those with whom we are struggling. With the conflict between Euodia and Suntuki in the immediate context, this may well be what Paul is after. After all, when we struggle to live in harmony with others, here believers in Christ, it is because we've decided to focus on what about them bothers us. We cannot seem to find the good. Paul has extolled or praised both these women in verse 3, giving us an example and setting the tone for what he will say in these verses. 
He had called upon them to be gentle and reasonable with one another, verse 5, and to pray, essentially pray for one another as part of this, which would include petitioning God for those with whom we struggle and are a source of anxiety, and God promises a peace that will guard our hearts, etc. The old saying is that it is hard to stay mad at someone for whom you are praying. If verse 8 follows this pattern, then the lesson is not just about finding the best in life, generally being content with, you know, circumstances, etc., living conditions, whatever, job, etc., but finding the best in people, especially those with whom we struggle and primarily focus on their weaknesses or flaws or the worst in them. This, then, is a call to see the best in others, to see them as God sees them. Take a look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now, before we get into the six uh, phrases that scholars have talked about lie in synonymous parallelism, that just means... There's, there's, there are in pairs of twos that equal six, and we'll talk about that in a second. You almost get the idea that Paul's use of the word whatever, if there's anything, has the idea that he's saying, look for the good. If you, whatever you can find, if there's anything praiseworthy, begin to dig down and mine for those things. Because you all know that if you are struggling with a relationship right now, whether it's your spouse or some other relationship, family member, work, uh, you know, a neighbor, whatever it is, we can get into a mode where we are constantly seeing the flaw in that person. And we have stopped looking for anything good in them. We have become catastrophic in our thoughts toward that person. And so the word whatever is found six times, the word any once, and the word anything once each. And you get the idea that Paul is saying, just look for something good. And you almost get the feel that he's talking still about these two women and saying, hey, if, if you want to resolve this, you guys have to pray for one another and start looking for the best in each other rather than the worst. This is the key to live in harmony but it's also a key of overcoming anxiety because when we have relationships like this, it is a main source of anxiety in our lives. We're always kind of undone and discombobulated by interactions and the like. And so we have to find the key here. And the key, Paul is saying, is about focus. And he's giving us thoughts about contentment. Well, what does he say? Well, in the six parallel phrases, if you pick it up in verse 8 with me, he starts off with, finally, brethren, whatever is true. The Greek word for true is unconcealed, constant, valid, trustworthy, correct. This is a mind that is stayed on God. God is the God of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we have to look at what's true. Now, what do we know about people that's true? We know that God loves people, that God, that God made people in his image. And more than that, if you are struggling with a Christian brother or sister, the Holy Spirit lives in them, Christ in them, the hope of glory. 
Far be it from me to not see what's true in them, what's real, authentic, etc. A mind that is consistently contemplating truth, i.e. God's word, and has a focus on God will start to see people through God's eyes and see what's actually true of them. Think about Jesus and his ministry. How many times are you surprised when you read the Gospels that he doesn't focus on people's weaknesses, including the apostles, but rather elevates their strengths, what God knows they will become or what they will ultimately be? And this is one of the truths that Paul says is going to help all of us. To reject lies, the devil is a liar. He's the father of lies, John 8, 44, and rather to ground our view in truth, how God loves people. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable is the kind of parallel phrase here. They're related but not exactly the same. You have uh, whatever is True, whatever is honorable. The definition here is worthy of respect. It signifies moral excellence. It points ultimately to Christ, who is the noble, honorable one, of course. But it also points to elders and leaders who are to be honorable people. It signifies dignity, depth, and excellence. It is indeed seeing Christ in others. What do I see that's noble about that person? What can I accentuate that is positive? The word just, uh, the next two are just and pure. The word just refers to what is right. What do they do that's right? The broad sense of the word is in view here and includes thought and action. Here it speaks of justness, rightness, good character. And then pure is what is morally beautiful, undefiled. It speaks of moral pu purity. It points to Christ ultimately. We're to purify ourselves just as he is pure but we're to look for what is pure in people as well. Beauty about them. Perhaps sometimes it's the beauty of their innocence. Sometimes it's the beauty of how they look at things, etc. Notice whatever is lovely, as we move down the verse here, whatever is lovely speaks of that which is pleasing and amiable, kind and gracious. It's what is beautiful in God and beautiful in people. The only ones made in his image are people. What's beautiful in his creation? One writer says, what is lovely is that which calls forth love or is love-inspiring. One writer says, everything from a sunset to a symphony. Perhaps you could think about it this way. I just love that about this person. I, rather than thinking about what I don't like about them, I love this about them. And you begin to think on the things that are positive. And finally, of good repute is what is commendable about uh, others here. We think of what's highly regarded. We think of things like kindness and courtesy and respect for others. Jesus went around doing good. Now, these six parallel phrases have a lot to say to us. Finally, brethren, these are the things we focus on. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is, Paul summarizing now, any excellence... Anything worthy of praise, the Greek word here means anything laudable, anything commendable. Let your mind dwell on these things. The idea of dwelling on these things is a Greek word called logizomai, and it's where we get the idea of a mathematical word called a logarithm. It's the idea of a deliberate, prolonged, contemplative uh, looking over a math problem, but here... It's a long, deliberate, pro prolonged contemplation 
on these beautiful things within that person or even within my circumstances or my life. Can you see how transformative this is? If you let your mind dwell on these things, catastrophic thinking begins to be pushed out. Negativity begins to be pushed out because you begin to flood your mind on the things that are true and lovely and pure and honorable. So I have found myself this week trying to catch myself when I go the way of catastrophe in my mind and rather begin to praise God for who he is or how he's made people or special qualities that I can actually celebrate. And I found myself turning those things into prayer and thankfulness like, Lord, thank you for that person in my life. You know, they're, they're such a gracious person. I appreciate how they serve, how they pray, how they love, etc. And all of a sudden, a transformation begins to happen in your heart and mind. This has to be deliberate. And it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful portrait of how to ponder these things and look for the best. I was reading R. Kent Hughes this week, and he said, what if you inverted the beautiful list in verse 8, and you did opposite? You inverted the words. It would be something like this, and maybe this is where many of you are. Finally, brethren, whatever is untrue, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is unlovely, whatever is uncommendable, if there's anything unpraiseworthy, dwell on these things and dwell and dwell and dwell some more. And all God's people said, yep. Because that may be closer to you right now than the positive list was. Maybe you resonate a little bit more with that negative approach to thinking. Someone has called it stinking thinking. And indeed, it is a battle in a fallen world. Think about the way that things are framed in our world, where people are nitpicked on news reports, where all their flaws and weaknesses are in open display in magazines that sell by the billions People's flaws and weaknesses tend to make other people feel better about themselves, but not so with the Lord. Not so with his people. If we're to love God with everything we are and love people as we would love ourselves, and more than that, Christ said we're to love people as he loves them, we're going to need help. And we're, we're going to need to dwell on these commendable things rather than negativity. We need to reject negativity and judgmentalism and even skepticism. And that's hard for a lot of us to do. This week, uh, I was reflecting on some notes that I had. I had preached Philippians 4 in 2014, and I was asking the Lord for some fresh manna. And this insight came to me this week. And on the day that it hit me, uh, Alex was in the office, and Alex uh, is our connections director, and he writes the questions each week from the sermon for the small groups. Alex had gone out to, to lunch late that day. It was about 2 in the afternoon. He finally got out to lunch, and he had flipped on his radio, and he came across a program just for a couple of minutes. It was uh, Dr. Dobson's program, Family Talk, I think is the name of it, K-Wave, 2 o'clock. And they had a guest on there, and this guest was calling for people to join the kindness challenge. And it was a 30-day challenge. It's happening right now. And here's what she laid out. And she had mentioned Philippians 4, 8, and 9 in the five minutes or so that Alex was in his car listening to this. She said, here's the kindness challenge. 
For 30 days, do this for one person that you interact with several times a week in your everyday life, you could say. One, say nothing negative to them or about them to others. Nothing negative for 30 days. So you can't say anything negative to them or complain about them to other people. Number two, say something encouraging to them at least once a day. Something that you would praise them for and then tell other people what you praise them for. She used the example, my husband uh, came home from work early and organized some things with the kids to free me up to do a meeting. Isn't that wonderful? And she went and told her friend. She told him, thank you for doing that. I really appreciate that. That means a lot to me. And she told her friends what he had done. She said, rather than complaining about my husband, I actually praised him to my friends. And then finally, three, do something kind and act of kindness. Once a day, it could be making a cup of coffee for your spouse in the morning. It could be something big or large. But just do one act of kindness once a day. Nothing negative uh, to them or others. One, two, something encouraging, worthy of praise, tell them and others. Three, do one act of kindness once a day for 30 days. They were talking about how scientists who study the brain right now are talking about neural pathways. And they say that when you begin to shift thinking uh, about different areas of your life, it could be exercise programs, diet, or even the way that you view life, you kind of open up some new neural pathways. And if you do something for 30 days, this is what scientists are saying, you will begin to actually change. And your go-to pathway will not be the old way, but the new way. Amen? Now, this is not foreign to any of us because we all know that we try to train ourselves to get better in a lot of different areas. And this is what Paul is basically teaching that you have, you know, the Bible says that as a man thinks in himself, so he is. Our thought life is so huge. What we decide to fix our eyes on. Uh, Psalm 101 verse 3 says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. I will not, it will not fasten its grip on me. A perverse, a perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. You're going to have to do some self-talk. Where if the normal way of thinking is A, you've got to talk yourself into doing B. And that's going to take you catching yourself and then beginning to rethink. And, and, the, and the, one of the best ways to do this is just to begin to thank God. Lord, you're here. You're with me. Would you help me to think a new way about this person, this situation? I praise you that you're my great high priest, that you will help me do this. I know you're with me. And as you dwell on these things, something transformative will happen. You will have a peace, and the God of peace will be with you. We'll talk about that in a second. But the things in verse 9, Paul is saying now that you've learned and received in me. Paul's not just talking about, uh, you know, kind of an idea here. In verse 9, he says, the things that you've learned and received, mark these if you mark your Bible, heard and seen in me, Practice these things. Now, Paul's not just talking about thinking. He's talking about practicing. Have you ever run into someone and maybe you begin to have a spiritual conversation? You say something like this. Hey, are you a Christian? Do you go to church? And they say something like this. Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't practice. Huh? Can you imagine a pro golfer 
who makes their living playing golf and they say, no, I don't practice. You know what practice gets teams in sports? It gets them whooped. Because if you don't practice, you're going to be mediocre at best. At whatever you do, if you don't practice it, you ain't going to be good at it. And Paul says, look, just to kind of bring it home, he says, look, you've got to practice these things. Put them into practice. And Paul says, you saw me. In Philippians 3.17, we saw uh, good examples or following the pattern of those who set good examples for us. And so you learned that. You received it in me. Paul was a man who loved people, no doubt. He was a hater and hated, and then he was transformed by the love of Christ. He went all over the Roman world trying to reach Jew and Gentile. Read his letters with this fresh insight. How many times do you see Paul as a friend maker, celebrating both men and women alike who helped him in the ministry, praying for them day and night, sometimes crying? He loved people so much. God had done a work in his heart. And this is the issue. Sometimes I just don't have God's heart towards people. I have to ask him to change my heart to fill me with his love for others and to practice these things. It's so important to practice. We uh, play golf regularly, and uh, usually on Mondays we play golf, and we don't practice. We show up at the course. I usually pull in about five minutes before the tee time, which won't shock anybody who knows me. I'm pretty much a game-time golfer. We're about to tee off. I get there. I do a couple stretches, and we, we go. But we always pray before we hit the first tee shot. And usually, you know, we'll, we'll do a general prayer, and then Pastor John will say, and? And the and is, oh, Lord, help us hit it straight. I believe that's testing the Lord, uh, frankly. <laughs> and we kind of joke about it. Oh, Lord, help us hit it straight. Now, I'm going to talk to you about how doing all things through Christ who strengthens us doesn't mean uh, prowess in sports or things that are impossible for you to do, humanly speaking. The I can do all things through Christ is going to be these things that we're learning about, how to walk out God's will. And so here's the promise. We had a promise for the peace of God in verse 7. And here's the promise. If you do these things... The God of peace, end of verse 9, will what? He will be with you. Now that's covenant Old Testament language. I want you to go back to a scene in your mind for a moment. Moses is at the burning bush. The Lord calls him as the deliverer. And Moses says, Lord, who am I? Uh, I'm not good at talking. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the people go? And God says to Moses, I will be with you. I can feel some of you right now saying, I could never do that. I can't change the pattern. I've tried. How many of you have taken a deep breath and said, okay, this time it will be different. Some of you make these declarations on Sundays. You're going to start the diet on Monday. Your famous song is, tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll diet tomorrow. Right? It's only a day away. Plus, there's chocolate cake and ice cream. Right? And so you make these declarations, and some of you have made them in the way you think or your interaction with people. Okay, this time. <laughs> 
It's going to be different. All right. I'm ready. And all of a sudden, you're so used to dancing the same dance and doing the same thing. It doesn't take long till you're right back there. And you say, I can't do it. I can't. I've tried. I've failed. And that's the key. You've tried and you failed. But you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's either true or it's not. And if it is true, and if that is the word of God, then you can do this. You can get rid of catastrophic thinking, and you can begin to accentuate the beautiful things in people with whom you struggle. I am sure I am speaking to someone whose marriage is on the rocks right now. And you have gotten into such a mode with your spouse that you cannot see any good in them at any time. I get couples sometimes in the office, and all they want to do is come in and complain about their spouse because they haven't done it enough to their spouse. And (laughs) they just want to get another witness in. Oh, you won't believe what he's been up to. You won't believe what she's been up to. And often we say something like this. Did you come here just to complain about them or do you want to get better? Do you want to find new healthy ways to improve your relationship? And some of you have thrown up your hands and you say impossible. But the promise is that when you do this and practice it, literally God will be your partner in the endeavor. The God of peace will be with you. When Joshua took over for Moses. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. Joshua 1.5, etc. Gideon's told that he's going to be a mighty warrior of God. Who am I? Who is my clan? I will be with you. The apostles are given a great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. If that is true, if God is my partner in peace, then certainly I can do this. And that's the issue. I can do it with God's help. And I feel your hearts. I feel you saying, you know, I've tried, but it's, it's the difference between the try of the flesh and the power of the Spirit It's the difference between trying to do it on your own and bringing the Lord and his heart and his eyes into it. So, Lord, help us with these things. Now, we're going to move quickly over a couple of verses here as we deal with contentment. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived. That has the idea of blossoming again. You're concerned for me. He's speaking to the church They were separated. He was in house arrest, so obviously they lacked opportunity. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. They had a heart to give, but they couldn't really get to Paul, and they were perhaps not even knowing what was going on with him. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. See the word learn there? That's a Greek word, monthano. It literally means to learn by experience. O'Brien says, learn implies a process. Learning contentment is a process. And this gives me hope. Because if it was a process for Paul, if he had learned the secret of contentment, 
then I can embrace the process. You may not get fully better the next time you try, but if you embrace the process, you'll learn more and more about contentment. Amen? If you make a little headway, if you get a little bit better each time, if you bring the Lord in a little bit more, if you have his perspective a little bit more, you will have more and more contentment and less and less catastrophic thinking. And Paul says, look, I've learned whatever circumstances I, I am in to be content. Notice, I know how to get along with humble means. And Paul right now, finding himself under house arrest was certainly there. Literally, I know how to be brought low, ESV. And I also know how to live in prosperity. Paul may have been thinking back to times as a Pharisee, uh, the religious elite. He was probably wealthy, very respected in those circles. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I have learned the secret. And I ask you, have you? Have I? What was Paul's secret? It is something that eludes so many people, but it can be ours this morning. And here's what it is. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. Do you know that the word faith uh, movement in our country, prosperity preachers, have sold a bill of goods to many people on so-called Christian television. What they basically said that is that in order for you to be blessed by God, you must be at this standard of living. A book flew off the shelves uh, it was probably well over a decade of, ago, uh, popularized on Oprah's show called The Secret. You remember that? If you boil down the book called The Secret, which was simply new age, speaking your own reality kind of garbage, it was basically this. All you got to do is speak your reality. You're about to eat that chocolate cake. This will not put five pounds on me. And then you tag it in Jesus' name, and, and you're good. You speak to the universe. Whoever this universe is, one of the word faith teachers goes on uh, television, pulls out the wallet and says, oh, Bill Fold, you're just full of money and fat. And, and then, of course, it's usually a commercial about giving to their ministry. I wish they would practice what they preach. I would take, you know, if they want to test it on me, they can give it to the Michael Lance Foundation. I, I, I'm not troubled by that. <laughs> sort of a joke. You get the point. We get this notion in American culture and Christianity that it's all about some level of living, and that's not at all what God's after. Now, look, we want to work hard, and many of us be, have become prosperous in this country. That's not the issue. But the issue is making that the measure of your contentment. You know, they asked one billionaire, how much is enough money? Well, just another million, just another billion. It's always just out of reach. Do you know that advertising breeds this in us? We, we think we're fine until we see that car commercial. <gasps> oh, I don't have that. Well, I can't be content now, <laughs> right? And it just blasts our heart way away from the heart of God. You see, we've brought nothing into this world and I don't know if you knew this, but you're taking nothing with you. Naked I came into the world, 
Naked, I'm leaving it. The old joke is true. You never see hearses pulling U-Hauls. You're not taking any of it with you. You're going to leave it all behind. And you say, well, then how can I do this? Because this, this lust for these kinds of things plunges so many people into ruin, which 1 Timothy 6, 6, and 6 through 11 says. What do I do? How can I do this? It's verse 13. It's the final verse. I can do all things through Christ, or literally in Christ, who strengthens me. The word strengthen there is a word which means induce me with strength. It's a word that means to put power in. When God endows us, he puts power in. Uh, I black with Philippians 4.13, credit Tim Tebow, right? Uh, that's impressive. But if I put I black on with Philippians 4.13, I still can't throw a football 75 yards. You know why? Because I'm in my 50s. I have to warm up before I play ping pong. It's gotten very sad, but that's where I'm at. <laughs> I'm trying to embrace it. What are you doing? Why are you warming up? I don't want to throw a shoulder. We're playing ping pong. I mean, come on, man. But that's where I'm at. So anyway, does it mean that when I get on the first tee, I should say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and my ball will go straight, unusually, because it usually goes way to the right. My ball's a conservative, actually. It's always going right. <laughs> anyway, is that what it means? Does it mean that I can leap tall buildings with a single bound, that I can become a superhero? You know, in the pagan culture in which uh, Paul lived and ministered, the Stoics believe that one of the highest values was to be confident in and of yourself. You just, you had it all together. Stoicism was, nothing affects me. Good, bad, indifferent, I'm stoic. But the Stoics didn't have the power of God. We do. Amen? And this is what Paul is saying. Just a few translations so we get our arms around it. I'm ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. Verse 13, J.B. Phillips. The Amplified Bible says, I'm self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. Another way to put it is, I am strong enough for all these circumstances in my union with him who strengthens me. Again, don't forget the context. It's not sports. It's not anything else. It has to do with accomplishing what God has asked you to do. In other words, what he's asked you to do, he will give you the power to do. Amen? He's asked you to love him and love other people as you love yourself. That's where he's going to give you the power. He will give you the power to do anything that he's revealed that is his will for your life. Okay, Lord, I'm afraid, Moses says. I don't want to go to the Pharaoh. I'm not good at talking. I will be with you. Okay. Gideon, Lord, I'm afraid. You've pared down my army to 300 men. What now? I'm with you. And so each time that we have a question mark that troubles our soul, like, how could I do this, Lord? I'm so used to doing A instead of B. I will be with you. And you start kind of changing the way you think. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk 
and not become weary. Father, help us with this message. It is close to home, and it's where we live. And thank you that the Word of God speaks to our lives right where we are. We live in a a time when so many people are troubled and anxious and worry and have catastrophic thinking. And Lord, I battle all these things as well. Would you teach me your ways? Teach me your heart. Teach me to think the way that you think. Teach me to have a peace that passes understanding that's your peace. You promise to be my partner in peace as I live out what you've called me to live. In fact, you say I can do everything that you've called me to do through the one who strengthens me. Thank you for the precious Holy Spirit in our lives who empowers us, endows us, so that we can do what we've, we've been called to do. And that is to love you and love others and live and preach your gospel. So help us in those areas, Lord. And we want to lay down any things that we've carried in here, Lord, any extra burdens, any struggles or shortcomings. We lay them at the foot of the cross. Thank you that we're a forgiven people, that you love us. And as we come to your table right now, and we think about nourishment from our God, bread from heaven. These elements really picture spiritual realities of the bread of God, the pierced body of Jesus, the blood shed for our sin, our great high priest, the powerful resurrection of our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit, and all these beautiful resources right uh, to us as the people of God from heaven. We're grateful, and as we partake of these elements, we pray you'll be glorified in Jesus' name.